0: everyone, Shirley here. Whether you work at a small, mid-sized, or large government contractor, effectively teaming with others is the key to success. Federal procurement regulations require and encourage teaming. The federal government has come to realize that teaming not only fulfills their socioeconomic goals and provides opportunities for small and disadvantaged businesses, but when done right, Teaming injects innovation and flexibility into government operations. There's more competition, prices are reduced, agencies' missions are fulfilled, and the American people benefit. But why are so many government contractors frustrated and feeling like their margins are being squeezed? Why do teams fail? And what are the secrets of teams of contractors that have gone on to significant success? That's what we're talking about today. First of all, what are the types of teaming arrangements we find in the federal marketplace? and In what ways are those arrangements regulated? And how do you find and keep good teaming partners that result in fulfilling, profitable growth for all parties? To help us with this discussion, I reached out to Sherilyn Harley-Lebon, a partner at the law firm of Dunlap, Bennett, and Ludwig. Welcome, Sherilyn. Thank
1: you so much, Shirley. I'm so happy to be with you here today.
0: Well, I'm so happy that you're here as well. Tell our audience a little about yourself and Dunlap, Bennett, and Ludwig.
1: I'd be happy to. Very briefly, I have 25 years experience working at the intersection of business and government. I worked as a senior-level lawyer in the House of Representatives and in the U.S. Senate, where I help businesses of all sizes navigate working with the federal government. I'm also a senior level political appointee. I worked at the Veterans Affairs Agency, working with veteran business owners, and I was the agency's liaison to Capitol Hill. And I spent almost four years as an appointee at the Small Business Administration and several executive roles, including a deputy in field operations, which oversees half the size of the agency, and overseas, um, 8A hub zone, um, SBA loans and financial assistance, 50 district offices, as well as the regional offices. I was deputy chief of staff, having oversight over the entire agency. And then finally, I finished my time at SBA as assistant administrator for intergovernmental affairs. In my combined experience working on the Hill, as well as um, at two agencies. I'm able to help small businesses and government contractors across the country really navigate working
0: with the federal government. Excellent. I'm so glad you're here today. This is such an important topic. First, let's define what we mean by teaming. In the federal marketplace, companies combine their skills, resources, and capabilities to jointly pursue specific government contracts. There are various ways in which that can be accomplished. Sherilyn, can you tell us about some of those teaming arrangements that we find in the federal marketplace?
1: Sure. And I'd love to just give your listeners an overview and also present the disclaimer that I am not giving legal advice at all. This is merely information I'm providing for educational purposes. So I just want to make that clear. Yep, absolutely. So... A contractor teaming arrangement, or CTA, you know, that's defined in the rules, and we, the rules are the federal acquisition regulation rules, or the FAR, as an arrangement in which you have two or more companies form a partnership or joint venture, and they act as a potential prime contractor, or a potential contractor agrees with one or more companies to have them act as subcontractors under a specific government contract or acquisition program. And again, these things are all defined in the FAR, and these are typically formed before a prime contractor submits an offer to the government, but it can also be entered into later in the procurement process, you know, for example, you know, after the contract award. I always tell clients that these are great opportunities to test out relationships with potential partners. You get to know them. You get to know their executive teams. You see how they work. This is also the time when you want to be asking some important questions. You want to find out the revenue of your potential teaming partner. How many employees do they have? What has been their growth pattern in the past few years? This is a great opportunity to be in the get-to-know-you phase, right? Yes. These are the things you need to keep in mind.
0: That's very good advice, and we're going to explore some of those factors in a few minutes. So, Sherilyn, is a CTA considered an umbrella term under which several types of agreements can be constructed?
1: Yes, Shirley. as I mentioned, according to the FARS definition of contractor teaming arrangements, it includes the JV partnership or prime sub relationship, and it's easier to understand a teaming arrangement as either being horizontal or vertical. So, for example, JVs involve companies coming together, usually by forming an LLC or partnership, and a JV agreement, horizontal. So a prime sub relationship is created by subcontractor agreement when a prime contractor agrees that it's going to allocate a certain amount of work to one or more companies under a specific contract, and that is more
0: vertical. Following me? Yes, absolutely. Now, by, by far the most common teaming arrangement that small businesses enter into is as subcontractors. So let's delve into a few areas that small businesses need to be aware of, starting with the limitations on subcontracting.
1: Good, wonderful question. So the limitation on subcontracting, Shirley, is a restriction on the percentage of cost can't be subcontracted by a prime contractor to a non-similarly situated entity. Again, all these things are governed by the FAR, right? Let me say an important thing about the FAR. You know, we have the FAR, which has all of its rules, but what people need to remember, and I, I caution my clients, is that, you know, that interpretation of the FAR takes many different forms. And if Clients aren't sure this is when they need to seek the guidance of attorneys because when people start trying to interpret the FAR on their own, that's when people start getting into trouble. There's many different nuances of that FAR, so don't think the FAR is the be-all and end-all of all things. There's going to be interpretations by the contracting officer. There's going to be interpretations by various parties in the contract. This is an area of law where you really kind of need to, you know, you're going to look at things in different ways and different angles, and nothing is absolutely clear all of the time. Okay, back to the limitation on subcontracting. So the limitation on subcontracting rule exempts subcontracting to a similarly situated entity, and that occurs when a prime and subcontractor share the same business Socioeconomic status in each team member is considered small under the size standard associated with the NAICS codes, And the limitation on subcontracting rule applies to any small business set-aside contract with a value greater than the simplified acquisition threshold and to any socioeconomic set-aside contract, regardless of the value.
0: Now, Sherilyn, when you say similarly situated, you mean that both the prime and the sub are 8A certified or both are WSBs, right? Yes. So
1: subcontracting to a similarly situated entity is exempt under the limitation on subcontracting and the ostensible subcontractor rule. I can give you another example. HubZone Prime is awarded a $10 million services contract and subcontracts $8 million to a HUBZone certified firm. In this case, the prime does not violate the limitation on subcontracting because the subcontracting to a similarly situated entity is excluded from that limitation on subcontracting. So on the other hand, the HUBZone prime subcontracted to a WOSB, then the prime is in violation of the limitation on subcontracting because it subcontracted more than 50% to a non-simarily situated entity, and the two firms are therefore affiliated.
0: So are there additional requirements for joint ventures? So
1: joint ventures must comply with the performance of work requirement. This means that the managing member of the JV and that is a business which the JV's eligibility is based, they have to perform at least 40% of the work that the JV performs. So additionally, if the JV includes a large business mentor, then it can perform up to 60% of the work as opposed to 49% under a prime sub-teaming agreement. For example, if the JV performs a general services contract, the JV can subcontract out 50% of the work to the non-similarly situated entity. Now, we're going to assume that the JV performs the remaining 50% of the work, then the managing member, meaning the small business protege, must perform at least 40% of the 50% of the work performed by the JV, or 20% of the total contract. And the large business mentor can perform 60% of the 50% or 30% of the entire contract. And I really hope I have not confused your listeners.
0: Yeah, no, this this is excellent. That was a really great example. And this is an important point. That under the SBA's all-small mentor-protege program, the mentor and the protege can enter into a joint venture to pursue a set-aside contract, like a HUBZone, SDVOSB, or WOSB set-aside. And if the JV wins the contract, the large business can perform up to 60% of that resulting contract. And this is a significant incentive for large businesses to engage in mentor-protege JV, correct?
1: Yes, yes. And let me add something. Small businesses need to understand. The bigger companies need you more than you need them. Let me say this again. The bigger companies need you more than you need them. The bigger companies need the smaller companies to access the set-aside. This is why the program has been designed, so that the smaller companies get a bit of a leveling of the playing field. This is why it's really important for the smaller companies to choose their partners wisely and to choose your mentors wisely,
0: And that is an excellent point, Sherilyn, we're going to be addressing that in more depth uh, here shortly. We need to take a break. I'm talking to Sherilyn Harley-Lebon, a government contracts and corporate partner at the law firm of Dunlap, Bennett & Ludwig, about the legal and business considerations of successful teaming. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion on CTAs, and we'll address my 10 business steps that lead to mutually beneficial financial outcomes. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
2: This Masters federal presentation is hosted by Shirley Collier, President and Founder of Scale to Market. Scale to Market helps businesses think, plan, collaborate, and build market value by developing and executing customized data-driven business development playbooks, Building efficient information systems, and creating high performing BD teams. Utilizing the proprietary davy Business Development Growth Framework, Scale to Market partners with business owners and executives to increase their company's value by achieving profitable and sustainable growth in the federal marketplace. Email Shirley at scollier at scale to market.com to learn more about the davy Growth Framework and how it can be instrumental in helping grow your federal contracting business. Back now to Shirley's conversation with Sherilyn Harley-Lebon, a partner with the law firm Dunlap, Bennett, and Ludwig, as they discuss the legal and business keys to successful teaming in the GovCon marketplace.
0: Welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about the mentor-protege JV program. Now, Let's clarify the GSA's CTAs. Sherilyn, can you explain how those work?
1: Sure. So the GSA has a different definition of a CTA than the FAR, which makes things, you know, a little bit confusing because it's the same word but defined differently. So under the FAR, CTA is a JV partnership or a prime relationship, And JVs are often formed by creating a separate legal entity called an LLC. However, the FAR does not apply to GSA schedules and their teaming arrangements. Under the GSA schedule, the CTA is an arrangement in which two or more GSA schedule contractors team together and each member maintains the privity of contract with the government, which essentially treats them as primed. So unlike a JV, CTA under GSA schedules is not a Separate legal entity. And unlike a prime sub-relationship, which only requires the prime contractor to have a GSA contract, all the parties in the CTA under GSA schedule must have a GSA
0: contract. Thank you for that clarification. I know a lot of small businesses are very confused about that.
1: Very. And as I mentioned earlier about, you know, just reading the FAR or any, you know, agency rule. is just not enough because in this alphabet soup that we're all in, in this business of federal contracting, you've got all these agencies and sometimes the agencies have all different rules. You cost your business a lot of money and you don't want to do that.
0: Yes. Now, Sherilyn, we talked about this a little previously, but I want to explore it a bit. A popular teaming arrangement is the all-small joint venture. Can you explain the legal structure of joint ventures used in government contracting and some of the liabilities associated with them?
1: Yes, my pleasure. So, JVs can be organized like an LLC or informally just by a written agreement. And an LLC is recommended because it provides the legal structure that you want, but it has the flexibility because it's simple and it's a pass-through entity that has beneficial tax and other operational characteristics to it. So because of the um, more complicated tax structure of a corporation, I see in my practice very few companies that are creating corporations as their JV legal structure so please know that. Now, prior to 2020, the Mentor-Protege Program was specifically reserved for 8A small businesses. Now, thanks to my wonderful former colleagues at SBA, the 8A Mentor-Protege Program and the all-small Mentor-Protege Program have merged into the SBA's Mentor-Protege Program, MPP. The MPP allows large businesses to compete for small business set-asides as long as they play by the SBA's rules. So, number one, the mentor-protege JV will only qualify for which the protege is eligible, okay? Second, the SBA is required to approve the mentor-protege agreement but does not review or approve JV agreements prior to award for the non-8A contracts. And I'm going to get back to that in a minute. And third, the small business protege must certify to the SBA and their contracting officer that the JV agreement complies with the SBA's overall JV content requirements. So important to note, people often wonder why did SBA change the rules. Well, the reason they changed the rules is because they had congressional pressure because companies complained that SBA took too long and there was a hold up, et cetera, et cetera. Now, let me say something. There's a reason why SBA did it this way. And I think that SBA served a great purpose in reviewing and approving those JVs because they could make sure that that JV is sound, that the small businesses were not being taken advantage of, making sure that the... Larger businesses weren't getting more of a share of the business than they were supposed to, and again, just ensuring that that small business is protected. Now, without SBA not having the sign-off on all the JVs, I think, Shirley, quite honestly, we may see some more problematic JVs coming down the pipe.
0: Ah, um, that's something for us to all be looking out for. Now, um Charlene and I also understand that the three and two rule has changed.
1: Yes, that's another important consideration. So, prior to this change in November of 2020, um, JVs were limited to three contracts over a two-year period, otherwise known as the three and two rule. Or at least that's what I called it. However, now that SBA has eliminated the three contract limitations for JVs, which you know effectively means JVs. Um, can compete for as many contract opportunities as it can from the start date of the first contract award. So, in other words, now we've got the creation of the infinity in two rule, which went into effect on November 16th in 2020.
0: Now, the SBA released a final ruling in August of this year on past performance by small contractors. Uh, Which is very advantageous, uh, in, in my understanding. The new rule provides two new methods by which small businesses can obtain past performance credit when competing for federal prime contracts. First, the rule allows certain small businesses to rely on the past performance of joint ventures in which they were a member. Secondly, the rule establishes a process by which certain small businesses can request, obtain, and rely upon past performance obtained when performing as a first-tier subcontractor. So this rule greatly expands the ability of small businesses to establish a record of meaningful and relevant past performance, which, as we know, is cherished by agencies. But, like everything, (laughs) there are nuances. Can you clarify when and how this past performance can be claimed? Yes.
1: I'm going to be a little wordy here, so I'm going to ask everyone's grace and and patience as I kind of clarify the rule here. So, to receive past performance credit for JV members, a small business has to do a couple things. Number one, they have to identify the joint venture where the small business was a member. Two- List the contracts of the joint venture the small business wants to use. And three, inform the agency what duties and responsibilities the small business performed within the joint venture. The agency will not give credit for work the small business did not perform, right? I mean, that's fair. So a small business that performed as a first-tier subcontractor on a large business prime contract with a subcontracting plan and contracts to a large business valued over 750000 they can request a past performance evaluation from the prime. Okay, that's handy. The subcontractor must request the rating 30 calendar days after completion of the period of performance for the prime contract with the government. The prime contractor is required to provide a rating of the small business past performance within 15 calendar days of the request. Now... The rule says the prime has to respond to the subcontractor request to provide a rating. The prime's failure to provide a required rating can result in several penalties. And I'll just list a couple, you know, um, not all, not exhaustive, but a couple. Termination for default or the withholding of award fees, lower past performance rating under the subcontracting element, even possibly debarment if the failure is willful or repeated. Okay? And then the final rule, Shirley, also encourages subcontractors to notify the contracting officer of the prime's failure to provide the required rating.
0: I am so glad to see that primes are now obligated to provide ratings for their subcontractors. This has been so difficult in the past. These past performance ratings can then be leveraged by these small businesses for their own prime contracts.
1: Yes. And, and let me um, add, I, I'm also glad, again, you know, in this whole balance and this relationship between the prime and the sub, this is kind of what I'm getting at now, right? Like, just don't leave the little guys hanging, right? Yes. And this is an example of where the little guys were left hanging. Yep. And now... The government is saying, prime, you, you, you have to submit these ratings because if you don't, now we're going to penalize you. Yep. And, you know, Shirley, I really like that added accountability. Yep. I think that helps. I think so, too. I think it helps the little guy.
0: Yep. Now, Sherilyn, although we discussed this a little earlier, many of my small business clients don't understand affiliation rules. Can you clarify that?
1: affiliation, yeah, I got to tell you, that's where a lot of companies can get kind of tripped up, okay? So it's important for people to understand that. Generally affiliation exists when one business controls or has the power to control another business or when a third party controls or has the power to control both businesses. And again, this is also in the regs um, that your clients can read and, and you know be informed. So the SBA uses the affiliation rules to determine if individuals or businesses are linked in such a way that they should be treated as one and the same for determining whether a small business is considered small for a particular procurement, okay? So in deciding affiliations, the SBA is going to look at uh, a number of, you know, the totality of circumstances to evaluate control based on a variety of different relationships, including management, ownership, identity of interest, and some other grounds. So if the SBA determines the companies are affiliated, then the revenue employees will be combined to determine size, and the JV no longer qualifies as small per that wonderful NAICS code that we mentioned previously. They lose the contract, and they can potentially face additional consequences, which may be suspension and debarment, okay? And so this is no joke. People need to take affiliation seriously, okay, because the consequences on affiliation finding always impacts the small businesses, okay? And they risk losing their small business size status and future contracting opportunities. So let me put a fine point on this. You really need to understand these affiliation rules, and the smalls need to be super careful because they don't want to mess around and lose their small business size status. I mean, this is how they're making their money, so you don't mess around with this. It's to be taken seriously, and you need to follow the rule.
0: Yes, thank you for that clarification. I agree 100%. On the positive side, mentor-protege JVs can be very beneficial and lucrative for all parties. Mentors are allowed to buy up to 40% equity in their protege companies, giving the small companies a much-needed injection of capital. These investments many times lead to the mentor ultimately buying their protege company completely when they graduate from their size standard. This provides a pathway for a successful exit for the small business owners. Now that we understand some of the rules and regulations around teaming, let's talk about how to make them successful for all parties involved. I have 10 business tips on the factors that contribute to successful teams. So please bear with me. Number one, teams work best when the companies have complementary capabilities. If they have the same skills, sometimes there is competition for work share. Number two, those complementary skills, capabilities, and relationships need to be discussed and documented. Teams can be two or more small businesses. It's not always large and small. Number three, the unique value proposition of the team needs to be very clearly articulated. What does this team do well and better than others? But of course, the intellectual property of the individual parties should be protected. Number four, agreement should be made on specific business development and marketing initiatives, investments, and procedures undertaken by both parties. Sometimes these are spelled out in the JV or the CTA. Number five, discuss your pricing strategy beforehand. Companies have different business models and philosophies regarding strategic pricing. Come to an agreement before signing teaming agreements. Number six, reporting, communications, and documentation should be clear. Systems to be used, frequency, duration, and purpose of meetings, data sharing, etc. These administrative misunderstandings can significantly impact the effectiveness and the success of teams. Number seven, check references, past performance, and the CPARS of your prospective teammates. Number eight, do business with people you trust and like. If possible, subcontract first. Number nine, things will always go wrong. Establish conflict resolution processes up front. And number 10, all business relationships have an ending. Plan for it. This is the bottom line, folks. The federal government allows and encourages contractors to partner together to pursue and win lucrative contracts. But there are legal constraints. Be sure you understand and operate within those rules and regulations. A good attorney is worth their weight in gold. I can tell you that as being a six-time business owner. But to produce sustainable financial success, business factors should be addressed thoroughly, as Sherilyn indicated. Roles, responsibilities, expectations, investments, people, processes, desired outcomes should all be discussed, agreed to, and documented. If done properly, teaming can be the single greatest factor that propels small companies forward. It opens up resources for larger companies and provides the injection of innovation the government desperately needs to fulfill its obligations to the American people. Sherilyn, thank you so much for sharing your insights with our audience today.
1: It has been my pleasure, Shirley. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, it was good having you. Folks, if you would like to get in touch with Cheryl Lynn, she can be reached at chlebon, that's L-E-B-O-N, at dbllawyers.com. Or you can reach out to us here at Skelto Market, and we'll make sure you're connected. This is Shirley Collier, president of Scale to Market and host of the Growth Masters Federal Podcast, signing off for now. As we close, I want to thank you for joining us today and encourage you to connect with me on LinkedIn and visit our website, that's scale-to-market.com, with the number two in the middle, where you will find our library of podcasts, webcasts, white papers, my blog, and other links and resources. While there, please leave us a comment or suggestion so we can stay focused on what's important to you. We'll see you next time.